Say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett and the website strangeplanet.ca. All right, when we come back, veteran UFO researcher Preston Dennett will take us on a fascinating journey into the very heart of the UFO phenomenon, exploring the many questions people have about UFOs and extraterrestrial contacts. Who are these strange beings? Why are they here? What is it like to meet ETs to be taken on board a craft? The answers are next on Coast to Coast AM. Preston Dennett began investigating UFOs and the paranormal in 1986 when he discovered that his family, friends, and co-workers were having dramatic, unexplained encounters. Since then, he's interviewed hundreds of witnesses and investigated a wide variety of paranormal phenomena. He's a field investigator for the Mutual UFO Network, a ghost hunter, a paranormal researcher, and the author of, I believe now it is 31 books and counting more than 100 articles on UFOs and the paranormal. His articles have appeared in numerous magazines, including Fate, Atlantis Rising, MUFON UFO Journal, Nexus, Paranormal Magazine, UFO Magazine, Mysteries Magazine. His uh, writing has been translated into several different languages, and he's appeared on numerous radio and television programs. He's a frequent guest right here on Coast to Coast. And his latest is Humanoids and High Strangeness, 20 True UFO Encounters. Preston, welcome back once again to Coast to Coast AM. How are you? Thanks, Richard. How are you? Very well, very well. I'm always amazed how um, you're able to come to the fore with uh, stories that have not been told elsewhere that that, uh, they share with you and almost exclusively. Um, Why is that? What is it about President Dennett that that people want to tell you and, and, I don't know, unburden themselves with, with these stories? Well, I do have a wide network. You know, as you said, I've been putting out books for a while. I have a website. You know, I appear on a lot of podcasts. So my name is out there. But I think I've gotten a reputation for being able to put out people's stories in an objective and accurate way. There's a lot of censoring going on. There's a lot of what I would call people putting forth their agenda, shoe-fitting, cherry-picking. I'm not doing that. I won't censor a person's story other than to vet it, perhaps. Each person who I write about in this latest book, I mean, they got their chapter. I sent it to them to ensure accuracy. So I think that's probably one of the reasons. But there's a lot of people out there who are having these encounters. It's not hard to find. I wanted to ask you about the vetting process because there are also, uh, I mean, there's no question there are people who have uh, some kind of an encounter, an experience uh, but there are other people who are, let's face it, um, fantasists, um, maybe delusional, um, perhaps some underlying mental health issue, uh, or they just want to plain out, you know, spin a yarn. How do you vet these people? Yeah, well, you do it to the best of your ability. And having been doing this for a while, I think I've gotten pretty good at it. I can obviously ensure completely that. Everyone is telling the complete truth, but you do go through your standard sort of process of this. I will first do an interview that's not recorded. I will just take down notes and see if this is something worth looking into. I will then do a recorded interview and follow that up with at least a couple of other interviews. I will try to get character references, confirm a person's job or do fact-checking on everything that they tell me to the extent that I can. I always love it when 
a case has multiple witnesses, because I think that adds a level of credibility. And when you examine a person's report, you start to get a feel for it, because there are certain details that might not perhaps be super well-known, even in the UFO community. And by that, I mean details about how the ETs might be dressed, the tools they use, the clothes they wear, what the inside of a UFO looks like, the sequence of events that take place, and that sort of thing. And also you gauge the person's emotional reaction. It's not uncommon for someone to say, you know, please don't use my name. Or, you know, I have no history of mental illness. And they qualify their testimony to a certain degree, saying, you know, I've got a good job. I don't do drugs, this sort of thing. But ultimately, it's the emotion that they attach to their experience that can be a dead giveaway. Because when someone starts weeping as they tell you something or becoming very emotional about it, that is hard to fake. Not impossible, of course, but, and many of these cases do have evidence of some kind. I mean, there's one case involving actual landing traces, and he sent me the photographs. I couldn't visit it. That's in Puerto Rico. But, yeah, there is evidence. Well, tell me about these photographs of, uh, uh, of a UFO landing. What, what, can you describe these photos? Yeah, certainly. Um, I absolutely asked for them because this is what he was talking about. Uh, he had a ring of kind of crushed grass in his backyard. This was following a number of close-up UFO sightings and immediately prior to a humanoid encounter. And the photographs clearly show a perfect ring of grass in his backyard, about six feet in diameter. He took it from different angles. It's clearly unusual and would be your sort of typical landing trace, which is always awesome because that's fairly rare to get a landing trace case. And um, because you know, the, the scorch marks were still there. This was a recent event, I'm guessing. Yes. Yes, absolutely. It was 20, gosh, let me see. I believe it was about 2014 when that occurred. Right, right. Um, you know, going through the book and, and um, again, there are 20 uh, encounters featured in the book and the, uh, the such a diversity of entities mentioned, it's it's uh, quite mon- mind-boggling. You've got greys, you've got human-looking ETs, mantids, reptilians, um, angels, nature spirits, ghosts, poltergeists, demons, Bigfoot, supernatural entities of all kinds. Um, yeah, yeah, I really wanted to feature the fact that this, the contact experience is much more varied than a lot of people realize. And coming along with it are a wide range of paranormal events. It's not just grays, people taking people on board, physically examining them. There's all different types of ETs, as you mentioned, human-looking, little blue beings, uh, tall whites, Mantids. I love the mantid cases. They're not super common and quite interesting. But yeah, all, almost always contactees will experience paranormal events like you know, astral projection, precognition, healing, levitation even. I mean, you name it, across the board, 
these sort of things keep appearing. And I really wanted to embrace that because I know that oftentimes these really strange events get edited out of people's accounts. They've told me this. And I think it's important that we include all the events that are happening because they're clearly connected. Oh, all right. Well, let me see. I think one of my favorite cases in the book is involving a pilot from Argentina. And I like this case because this gentleman has no prior history of UFO encounters. And that's unusual because this is something, as you may know, does start from early childhood and, generally speaking, around age four or five, but goes onward through a person's life. It's rarely a one-off. But this one gentleman, he had never had any encounter in his life. His name is Hector, Hector Sawiak, and he's actually from Argentina. It's one of the things I really enjoyed researching this book. I was able to get cases from all over the world, and by that I mean certainly across the United States, but Canada, South America, Argentina, and Peru, and across Europe as well, England, let's see, France, Germany, and even beyond that, partly in China, actually. But this gentleman, Hector, is a great witness. He is a professor, a college professor, a commercial pilot, uh, at one point a manager of the biggest bank in Argentina, so a really smart guy. And he had heard about sightings in his area. This is in San Juan, Argentina. And I like this case also because it's recent. This was around 2015. And he decided he's going to go outside of San Juan and see if he can see all these UFOs. He wasn't even really sure if he believed in them, just had kind of a passing interest, and drives an hour out of San Juan into outside of the city lights, mm -hmm. and he doesn't see anything, doesn't see a bloody thing. Really disappointed. But that night, he wakes up at 3 a.m. to hearing his name being called telepathically. I mean, he's in bed, and he jumps out of bed, you know, this voice, a male voice, is saying, Hector, Hector, over and over again. He jumps out of bed, runs to the window, and as soon as he gets there, he sees a UFO. It blazes across the sky pretty quickly, slower than a shooting star, but definitely faster than any conventional craft. And being a pilot, he knows this. So he felt like these UFO occupants actually called him out of bed and he had communication with them. So in essence, this is a CE-5 because he went out looking for UFOs. And while he didn't see them immediately, they came that night. But the real interesting part of this whole story is that he, a couple of months later, was in his bedroom, woke up to the room filling with light, and there were two entities. And one was six and a half feet tall, another about five and a half feet tall, standing in the doorway. And they had your sort of typical gray features, but weren't really exactly grays. They did have kind of grayish skin bald heads, large eyes, but looked almost human. So perhaps hybrids, hard to say. But they were wearing green jumpsuits with 
red collars, red cuffs, uh, red belts. He's filled with fear, absolutely terrified, until they say, you have no need to fear. We have not come to hurt you. And I love this part of the story because at this point, he says he felt this amazing wave of love coming from them. Actually, he described it as being like a love like never before, all-encompassing, overwhelming, even more than you know, falling in love with his wife or having his baby. And one of the shorter guy walks up to him, cradles his head in his arms, and Hector at this point is crying. This figure pulls out a little pill and says, we have come to heal you, and gives him the pill, which Hector takes. And that is the experience in a nutshell. He wakes up the next morning. He can still feel the tears on his cheeks. Uh, the ETs are, of course, gone. But his wow. outlook on life is forever changed. It's a very strange uh, case. Uh, how many of these 20 cases are, are first-time first experiences or contactees? And how many of them... Um, you know, they're experiencing contact or uh, encounters, let's say, more than once or maybe even on a regular basis? Oh, the vast majority involve multiple accounts. Uh, it's very rare that it's a one-off. Um, there are a couple of cases in the book because that does happen. That often happens with people who go out looking for them. There's another case that does absolutely speak to that. But generally speaking, no. After you interview the witness and start digging deep into their history, you uncover much earlier events that usually start around age five or so and continue sporadically throughout life. But that just wasn't true with Hector. I asked him over and over, I'm like, are you sure you had nothing going on in your childhood? Any parents who had encounters? Because this is often generational. But no, no, that was... A one-off. Um, let's talk about a case that involves missing time. There were two women. Uh, they were taking a, a, a trip across the USA, and um, they were traveling uh, a, along a remote desert highway in Utah, I guess. And, well, you, you take it from there. What happened? Yeah, this is one of the more extensive cases in the book. This occurred in September 1978. The main witness is Susan Ware and her friend Karen who did allow her real name to be used, uh, was along with her. And they were both from the Navy. So this occurred in 1978. Susan's about 22 years old, I believe. And they were delivering a car from California to North Carolina and had about a month to do it. So they were just going to take a nice, long, leisurely vacation, touching various hot spots, visiting various friends, just have a good time with it. And they had just left the town of Cedar City or, or Enoch in Utah. It was the middle of the night. And they were going to drive straight through to Colorado Springs, which is three, 400 miles. It's going to take them all night. But there was their journey was interrupted for sure because they're driving along. This is just a two-lane highway at that time out in the middle of nowhere. It's a beautiful night with the moon and the stars, and suddenly they notice that the stars have kind of disappeared, and so is the moon. There's just dead blackness all around them. So if she's hanging her head out the window like a dog, 
she's in the passenger seat, Susan, trying to figure out what's going on. And Karen is also freaking out. At this point, they're just kind of puzzled, not really afraid. But then Karen slams on the brakes. And this is weird. This is high strangeness for you. Standing in front of them on the road are about 20 or 30 four-foot-tall jackrabbits, which are normal because they are spaced perfectly evenly in kind of a random way, each 10 foot from each other, all facing the opposite direction and are perfectly still for the most part. I mean, they're moving. They can tell that they're actually living creatures of some kind, but not normal jackrabbits. So they stopped, you know, the car stopped. They both get out. They walk to the front of the car. The music is on the radio. The headlights are on. The engine's still running. When suddenly several things happen at once, these, quote, jackrabbits turn around, and they're not jackrabbits. They now reveal themselves to be grays, and the car lights go off. The engine goes off. The music stops playing. An enormous light blazes down from above and strikes them. Karen starts uh, screaming. At that point, the next thing they know, they're waking up. And they are many miles down the road in a little diner in Colorado Springs and really trying to orient themselves. They're feeling, feeling quite unwell. They've got basically a very severe sunburn all over their body and missing about you know, six hours of time, at least. Six hours. Uh, um, Preston, I've got to take a time out here. We're approaching the bottom of the hour, and uh, we'll come back and we'll pick up on this case, one of 20 uh, documented in Humanoids and High Strangeness, 20 True, true UFO Encounters. Preston Dennett, my guest. Back with uh, more of my conversation with Preston right after these on Coast to Coast AM. Welcome back. Say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett, strangeplanet.ca, the website. Recent excavations in Jordan have uncovered compelling evidence suggesting the ancient city of Sodom, infamous for its destruction in the book of Genesis, may have been annihilated by the impact of a catastrophic asteroid. While some scholars have interpreted the biblical account as more symbolic than literal, Archaeologists are increasingly uncovering proof of the existence of these cities and the possibility of their cataclysmic demise. The most recent findings in Jordan point, to, point towards a powerful asteroid impact, potentially more destructive than an atom bomb, as the case of Sodom's destruction. Dr. Jane, uh, John Bergsma, a theology professor at Ohio's Franciscan University, has been a proponent of this theory pointing to various indicators such as signs of extreme heat on pottery and human remains. These are typical markers of a natural disaster with no evidence of a military invasion. Moreover, the city's been thriving prior had been thriving prior to its abrupt downfall. You can see more of this story in the carousel up at coasttocoastam.com. If you like what you hear from me tonight, this morning, you might want to visit my website, strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca, and you can stream and subscribe to my podcast, Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, right there. New episodes drop every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And if you want to get deeper into Strange Planet, you might want to think about a premium subscription. There are three subscriber tiers to choose from. You get access to commercial-free listening, 
and uh, bonus episodes, a free subscription to my monthly newsletter, discounts on Strange Planet merchandise, and more. Strangeplanet.ca. Strangeplanet.ca. Back to my conversation with Preston Dennett as we discuss humanoids and high strangeness right here on Coast to Coast AM. And we are back with Preston Dennett, humanoids and high strangeness, 20 true UFO and, uh, encounters. And uh, Preston, we were talking about these two wo- women who took a trip across the U.S. and had a, a missing time encounter along a remote desert highway in Utah. Uh, and they sort of came to in this roadside cafe trying to, they were very disoriented. First of all, I just want to back up for a moment because the incident that preceded the missing time where they saw, suddenly they saw these 40, I think you described 40 jackrabbits on the side of the road, all evenly spaced together. Uh, and then the, the, as the, the jackrabbits turned around, they were not jackrabbits, they were gray aliens. Now I've heard about um, people having encounters with owls that ended up being um, grays or ETs. I've never heard jackrabbits before. Have you heard anything like this before? Yeah, a couple of times, not a lot, but you do get a lot of variation there. I mean, it can be anything from deer, often with children, when they have entities entering through the bedrooms, you hear things like clowns, superheroes, teddy bears, uh, cowboys even. I mean, I've heard quite a range. Animals is not uncommon. But, yeah, jackrabbits, that wasn't entirely new. Uh, I did. I do remember one distinct case where a lady saw a same thing, a four-foot-tall jackrabbit in front of her car. Uh, but, yeah... Not a bunch of them blocking the road. You know, no, they weren't along the side. They were blocking the road. So I think that they were expecting these women and doing what they needed to do to get them on board. Because that's absolutely what happened. They lived this experience for years. And finally, Susan, I mean, she was having memories of coming back down to the car, you know, floating through the atmosphere. They had physical evidence the fact that you know their bodies were suffering from pretty severe burns i mean it blistered uh they, they both ended up you know being quite ill afterwards but it wasn't until fairly recently actually susan decides she's going to explore this and goes online types in the word ufo and immediately finds out that john yost new documentary, award-winning documentary, Alien Abduction Answers, had been released that day. So she Hmm. bought it. Yeah, that was a remarkable synchronicity. And as she's starting to watch it, she's hitting upon things that are super familiar to her. So she had to watch it in little bits and pieces because it was very emotional for her. But finally ended up going under hypnosis and recalling being taken on board. And it's really remarkable because while hypnosis is not, I mean, it's controversial, let's face it. Some researchers won't touch it. But what she recalled matches up very well with what other people have consciously recalled. And she does have some conscious recall of this incident, certainly, and events in her childhood, which we can get into in a sec if we have time. But what she recalled was being pulled on board this craft car and everything, and laid out, physically examined, in the manner we often hear. But she saw this gray, and he seemed very friendly. And 
she actually kind of looked at him and said, can I touch you? And he said, yes, this is telepathic. She reached out her hand and kind of slid her fingers down his arm. And she said, you know, it didn't feel normal. She kind of equated it to a dolphin, which I found interesting because that is certainly something I've heard before. And she kind of expressed disgust, going, ew. And the gray said, no, not ew. We, I am you, and you are me. We are one. And that is a message I hear from a lot of contactees. Hmm. What about her uh, road trip mate, the other woman that was involved, uh, that ha- also had missing time? Did she? Did they see each other on the craft? Did the other woman undergo hypnosis? No, she has not as of yet. They just recently connected. Uh, Karen reached out to her. You know, with I encouraged her to do that. Um, she was quite nervous because this did cause some friction following the incident. They just couldn't talk about it became sort of a taboo subject. She has confirmed the missing time, does remember seeing jackrabbits, does not remember them being greys, but certainly does remember the entire incident and waking up in the diner, uh, which they believe they have located. So there's a few researchers working on this. Earl Gray, who's a California-based researcher, has highlighted this case as being one of the best MUFON received. Uh, of for that, you know, recently, I should say. But yeah, I mean, what appears to be the purpose for this onboard experience was perhaps a healing event, because she later did go to a doctor who re- uncovered the fact that she had some problems with her ovary, and that had apparently been healed, or her appendix as well. Also, well, this is not this is not uncommon. You filled an entire volume. You wrote an entire book about UFO healings. Yes, exactly. And what's interesting about this case is, you know, having experienced some burns that were quite unpleasant, she really wondered what's going on here, and ultimately feels like this was a very much a benevolent encounter. She's come full circle with it because it was quite scary. But recalling what happened on board, I think the most important takeaway. They wanted to give her a message, which was they showed her scenes of war. And so that humanity is on the wrong path. Everyone needs to come together in love and stop fighting each other. Um, and this is a very common message. ETs will give a message along these lines, you know, stopping nuclear proliferation, warnings against greed and corruption, destruction of the environment, but certainly against our warlike ways. And diving deep into her case, she did have encounters as a very young girl, would wake up outside her home, locked out, and at age five was already having dreams about war, tanks in the street, and things like this, which she equates to this message that she was getting apparently very early on. So yeah, it's an interesting case because it's lifelong. She's had other encounters. Tell me about these two young boys from Canada. Uh, let's get a Canadian, uh, some Canadian content in here. Um, th- th- tell me about how, first of all, how you, this happened when they were obviously much younger. They were boys at the time. Now they're, they're grown. Uh, tell me how you were able to, I, I believe you had to convince one of these um, now men, they're, they're, children or grandchildren to to con- sort of cajole and convince them to, to speak about it? 
exactly. Yeah, most people don't talk about this. They don't want to. They don't want their names used, most people. That's changed quite a bit. But, yeah, this witness did not want his name to be used, didn't want to speak, but it was his son who contacted me, who had been watching some of my videos on my YouTube channel, that really wanted his dad to talk to me because this story is quite unusual, a little bit different, lots of high strangeness, and took some cajoling for sure, but finally did convince his dad to contact me or allow me to contact him, uh, which I did, and I'm glad because this is definitely an unusual story, and I'll kind of pare it down to a little bit of a summary of it because it's pretty lengthy and quite bizarre. But it involved two kids from Ontario, Canada, age 14, who one of them had an out-of-body experience, just spontaneously out of the blue, freaked him out, but they both became very interested in astral projection and other esoteric subjects and were trying to find information about it. And there wasn't much out there. This is 1968. So they were having a tough time with this, but still very interested and they met this very unusual gentleman. And how it all rolled out was one of them, Jackson, I call him, was out hitchhiking, which back in those days was certainly more accepted. And this truck stopped by the side of the road, out in the middle of pretty, you know, between two towns. And two men come out and warn Jackson, like the guy in that truck is weird. Be careful. They walk out into the field, and there's nothing out there. So Jackson's thinking, well, that's weird but gets into the truck, and there's this enormous, obese, 35-year-old man, slightly balding, behind the wheel, turns to him and says, so, Jackson, how's it going with the astral projection? Well, that threw him for a loop, because he doesn't know this man, this man doesn't know him, but ended up talking to him. The guy was incredible. I mean, he could telepathically read your mind, started talking about UFOs and how he was in contact with them, actually offered to have Jackson taken on board, which he declined. He said he was too frightened. It was kind of shocked him to be confronted with that so quickly. But ended up talking to him a few times. And this gentleman, who called himself Peter, uh, would always try to encourage them to do psychic development. Now, I found this interesting because that is a big goal with ETs. Carter... Jackson's friend ended up meeting with him too. Carter was absolutely impressed with this man because he could read your mind. I mean, he called forth the wind on several occasions. He said he didn't eat food, had long since overcome it, which made Carter and his friend laugh because the guy's enormously obese. And they asked him, why are you so fat? And he said, well, you know, I take this form on because this allows people to notice me, and I can read them quickly. And always came back to UFOs. And shortly after meeting him, they were in their cabin. This is north of Ontario. And walking, well, Jack Carter missed the first sighting, but his friends were walking to the cabin and came running in and said, we just saw a Martian. Now, back in these days, there were no terms for grays, but that's apparently what they saw. And it was just a day or two later that Carter is walking across this bridge. I've located the exact location and is looking down into the parking lot and sees a little person. And as he gets close, he's about 100 feet away. 
you can see this is a gray. And it's looking at him, and he's looking at it. And he does kind of a double take, you know, steps back in shock. He said it was the funniest, strangest thing, because this little gray mimicked him and sort of fell back in mock shock, you know, mm. sort of yeah, pretending that he was right. scared, which really sort of gave him a human aspect to Carter and made him lean forward and stare intently, at which point that's exactly what this little gray did. <laughs> he said, you know, it made him almost playful. And as his friends came up, the gray sort of disappeared, but Carter knew he was still there, could kind of sense him there, but could no longer see him. So that, that was followed by a very intense close-up UFO sighting. So yeah, it's an interesting case. I'm skipping some of the details, but were were, uh, were you able to corroborate? Um, you were speaking with Jackson or Carter. I was speaking with Carter. Okay, were you able to corroborate and find Jackson? Yes. Yeah, there were uh, two, three other kids involved. Uh, one had passed away. One um, is having problems and doesn't really want to talk, uh, and the other didn't really remember a whole lot other than meeting him. It was Carter who was affected most. I mean, it really affected him profoundly. He ended up becoming very philosophical, doing a, a traveling trip across Europe, really getting into Gurdjieff and Uspensky and other philosophers, moved to Hawaii, lived off-grid, ended up having an amazing encounter there with his wife, which they both recall, and being pulled on board and he was being taught how to fly the craft, which really thrilled me because that is something I do hear from other witnesses, not super common, but he described what other people said. He said this craft itself seemed to be alive and that its structure was incredibly intricate, very complicated, super high-tech, but it was flown through psychic means, and he was being tested for that. So that, to me, was one of the most interesting aspects of this case. That I have heard before. Yeah. Um, flying them using psychic abilities. Did they ever see Peter again? Did Jackson ever encounter Peter again? Um, no, they saw him three or four times. Then he was gone. And then, and this is the part I did skip, which is really interesting to me, um, their cousin, who had been part of all of this, there was you know, four friends, basically, and cousins who were dealing with this guy, went to a fast food restaurant, and in walks Carter with a bunch of thugs, delinquent types, and he wants to jump up and introduce himself, because they all loved this man. I mean, this guy absolutely changed their lives, and he found himself paralyzed, unable to move, sitting at the table in this fast food restaurant for about 10 or 15 minutes, while Peter and these delinquent kids got their food and drove off. But he looked at Peter, Peter looked at him, and Peter made it clear that he was not to be disturbed at this point because he was dealing with these kids. And poor Daniel, as I call him, could not get up, could not move. He said it was as if my body was shut down. He wanted so bad to talk to this guy again. He had disappeared from their lives, left them all somewhat devastated. But no, they never saw him again. Carter is still waiting. Uh, he's had a number of UFO sightings over the years, but nothing like this series of events with Peter. 
All right, the top of the hour awaits on the other side. We'll open up the phone lines, take questions and comments. Your encounters with humanoids and high strangeness. Preston Dennett stays with us right here on Coast to Coast AM.